It's a great old hymn, Channels Only. Anybody remember that? Page 92 in your hymn book. What a great song. Look that up sometime and read that. Great words. It's good to be with you. Put a smile on your face. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And for those who are little ones up to grade 3, you can meet us. They can have them dismissed out to the floor if you want them to go downstairs for junior church, or you can keep them up here with us. We love kids, and they can stay right where you'd like them to be. Don't feel badly if if they're up here and they, you know, make a little noise, it's okay. Uh, some of you make noise when you're snoring, and we don't ever give you a hard time about that, okay? So uh, let them stay if you'd like. I'm glad my wife's not up here for that cartoon. That is, um, that's a running joke for us. Actually, her car is a 3,000-pound purse. That's what I tell her. Her car is a 3,000-pound purse. How many, have, how many husbands have a wife who has a car that's a... 3,000 pound purse. Oh, you're not putting your hands up. You're sitting with your wife, right? You're in trouble. I get you. You're smarter than I am. All right, let's, uh, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It's going to be back in our study today. In this seventh chapter of 2 Corinthians, we're going to start a new section in our chapter. And this section will be, as you'll notice as we get into it, kind of a breath of fresh air because as we've seen at this particular point in Paul's life, in fact, most of the time in the life of Paul, and in all honesty, most of the time in the life of those who minister, ministry falls short of being what it should be. And ministry can be grief upon grief, and I'm not talking about the grief of the task itself, but ministry is fraught with grief because of difficulty in relationships between sheep and shepherd and people and pastor, and that's where we find Paul as he writes 2 Corinthians. And I don't say this often, but if you have spent any time in ministry, you know that ministry can be very difficult in itself. Uh, The demands of preparation are painstaking if one is going to interpret the Word of God and rightly divide it week in and week out through the years of one's life. And you add to that the need to continually read the Word of God yourself so that you're exposed to God's revelation and allowing the Spirit of God to refine you and your own life and your own thinking. And you're constantly studying the language so that you can understand all the nuances of the text so that you can make sure you are clear about it and you spend time looking at others' understanding of theology so that you can check yourself. Uh, You want to be able, as 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us, to study and show yourself approved to God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And you do all of that so you'll be able to give an answer for the hope that is within you, primarily. And you'll be able to build up the church through the ministry of the word, and you'll be able to counsel and to restore and encourage those that are broken and fallen and wounded and weak and failing. And you do it so that you can hold off the rebellious and so that you can confront error and refute those that teach error, because sometimes you're required to do that. And as you may know, if you've done it, that's some of the kinds of things that go on in ministry. And of course, the great redeeming reward of that ministry, apart from the reward that's of heaven, of course, is the positive relationships that develop between the one who ministers and the people he ministers to. And what makes Ministry so rich and so fulfilling is changed lives and people who grasp the truth and and who apply the truth and who proclaim the truth and who walk in the truth and become teachers and counselors and ministers and, 
and missionaries and all of that. That's that's really the richness and the fulfilling part of ministry. And when a minister has the love and the response and the obedience and the submission and the support and the encouragement of the people in the ministry, in spite of its difficulty and the relentless nature of all of that, in spite of its consistent demands, that can be a really great joy and a privilege. And that is what we will see as we move into verse 6 of chapter 7 and beyond, and we are going to see some wonderful responses to the ministry, ones every minister hopes for, the visual fruit, if you will, of ministry that the Lord can accomplish by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'd like you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, if you will. Let's just start with that first verse. And for some reason, that's not advancing. So, Chris, if you could take me on, and we're on slide 4, please, if you would. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts within and fears without. Paul sets the stage for really the next 11 verses with this reminder, and there has not been a pastor, I don't suppose, in the history of the church, and there certainly aren't any today who don't know the grief of trouble that comes to their heart when the people to whom they invested the most returned the least. And at first glance, it would be easy to assume that the trouble Paul speaks about here came because of the pressure of a horrible world and a hostile world. And we've seen that he had really had to endure a good bit. And he recounts a lot of those things in the letter, and we've looked at some of those. And it's helped us to look at it, really to help us understand that we're, we ourselves are not victims, that we aren't just kind of subject and defined by what happens to us, and Paul's responses certainly uh, make that clear. But we just a quick reminder during this introduction to our new section, don't worry what's on the screen behind me, just, just listen, we'll catch up here soon. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, you remember this last week, we looked at this, Paul says this, who, speaking of the Lord, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with a comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. So that's that full circle we talked about last time. That's, the, that's coming under affliction and being comforted by the Lord in the affliction, looking to him and knowing that he always does that. And then as you receive that comfort, coming around and realizing that you have now something to give to someone else that you can bless them with, you can comfort someone. That's that full circle. And we don't want to be sidetracked anywhere along that path, affliction itself bringing us such discouragement that we don't move past that. And we're not looking to the Lord for comfort. And then, or getting to the point where the Lord brings us comfort, and then we're not realizing that we're going to be a comforter for someone else. But there's that full circle. But Paul says, listen, he comforts us in our affliction. And then in 2 Corinthians 1, 6, he says, uh, he says this, uh, Let's see, section, there we go. I think we're here. Uh, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, or if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. So uh, Paul says there's, there's some example going on as you watch my life. He said, that, and, and the things that I go through are for you. And, and we find that in the church, we have this a wonderful sharing of the difficulties that we have and the comfort, and that is interactive and effective in bringing everybody uh, to maturity. And then 2 Corinthians 1.8, he says this, he says, 
For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. You remember that. Uh, we looked at that. Verse 9, it says, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that uh, we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So there was some purpose in all of that difficulty that he went through. And he said, apart from all of the trying of our strength and the fact that we know that if somebody killed us, if God wasn't done with us, that he'd just raise us. There was that solid uh, faith that that would happen. He just says, listen, you, you know we had the death sentence within ourselves, and so we didn't trust in ourselves. And that's always a good thing. As we looked at Second Corinthians 12 last week, remember what we said that at... Paul went through these difficult times and just really upended his own pride. He realized he didn't have the strength to do the ministry in the way it needed to be done. And so the Lord just got rid of his pride through the hardship. And then he was really ready to be poured into by the Lord and be effective. So when you're really not very far into the epistle until you get the picture that this is a man in the midst of severe persecution from a hostile world. In 2 Corinthians 4.8, we are afflicted, he said, in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So that's to say that he was always on the brink of death for the same reason that Jesus gave his life, and that is the preaching of the word. And so there was always this repercussion of being faithful to the ministry, Paul says. So this is we're, we're coming back all the way around, the same as Jesus. We're going through the same kinds of things for the same reason, he said. And then in 2 Corinthians 6, 4, he says this. He said, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance and afflictions and hardships and distresses. And on down to verse 9, he says, as dying yet behold, uh, we live as punished yet not put to death. That was his life experience. So uh, this is a tremendous external persecution and difficulty. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, in verse 23, we're going to get to that later. He says, in far more labors and more imprisonments, beaten time without number. So he can't even remember how many times he took a beating for Christ. Often danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, off without food, in cold and exposure. And that was basically his life. That stuff could be enough for some people, for some pastors to lose their joy and be discomforted. Just that part. Just the hardship of the ministry itself. But as we've seen, that really wasn't the difficulty that hurt Paul the most. We confirm that what was really difficult in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, he says, apart from such external things. So there's all of that that's part of my regular life. Apart from that, there is the daily pressure of me on me of concern for all the churches then he says, who's weak without my being weak? Very empathetic, very connected to what the church was going through in all the churches where he ministered. He's connected to them. Who was led into sin with my, without my intense concern? So there wasn't anything, anybody walking in disobedience somewhere that he wasn't intensely concerned about and praying about. And that's a burden greater than, as we've said numerous times, greater than physical. See, it's the relationship issues that really get in there and can really do some harm. 
And we see clearly from 2 Corinthians 2, 4, he says, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. We, we don't see the world making Paul cry. Beaten time without number. I don't even remember how many times I took a beating. I took lashes from the Jews. I was in the sea a night and a day. I mean, we, we looked at all that. We, we don't see the world making Paul cry. We don't see physical hardship causing him a whole bunch of internal anguish. It was just part of his life. People in the church maligned him. People in the church attacked him. They rebelled against him. They were disloyal to him. And he visited them, if you remember, and, and things were not resolved. And he sent Titus with a letter. And Paul waited for Titus's return, and he didn't know what would happen. And no doubt, Titus probably had his concerns about the whole thing as he's headed there, right? His trepidation, there was some difficulty, certainly, and, and uh, he knew the situation. And so Titus goes with the letter. And while Paul's waiting for Titus to return, he was pretty restless, twitchy. And Paul couldn't find any, any comfort. He was concerned very much for what was going on in Corinth. And because, as we said, there's no hurt in the ministry like the hurt that comes from the people in whom you invest the most that return the least. Now, in this intro section, look back at chapter 2, if you will. I'm going to connect the dots here, but you've probably already done that. Paul is impatient, and he's nervous, and it's always like that when you're concerned that people won't respond to the truth because there's so much, so much riding on it for them that they walk in holiness and the blessing that comes from that and avoid the chastening of the Lord and the hardship it causes the church and, and causes the ministers who minister to them. All of that is, is there, and it's all riding on that. And so you, it's always like that. He's impatient, he's nervous, lost sleep, all of that. And then we see here that Paul was so restless, uh, he couldn't minister effectively. And if you remember, he says in 2 Corinthians 2.12, he says, when I came, I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. So that's an illustration of part of the meaning of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, if you remember. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey the lead, your leaders and submit to them. It's talking about in the church. that they, For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. That's precisely what's going on here with Paul, see? It's unprofitable. He's, he's, he had no rest in his spirit. Why? Because the church is not submitting to him and they're not... And they're not uh, coming up under them as he's, as they should, and he's supposed to keep watch over them, and he's going to give an account, as every minister does, over the churches that they pastor. And, and, and then he says, Hebrews says, let them do it with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And that's precisely where Paul is right now. He's in Troas, and the door's open for the ministry, and but he doesn't have a heart for it. And all of his turmoil and, and, his, and his unrest and his, his impatience and his nervousness uh, when people you minister to don't respond well to the word, and you know if you've done this, it takes really the heart out of the ministry. When you're going through difficult patches in a church, it takes the joy out. It brings grief in, and that makes the ministry very hard, and that's unprofitable for the church. That's precisely what Hebrews 13, 17 says. That's precisely what's going on with Paul right now. And Paul recalls that situation in verse 12. He says, now, when I came to Troas for the gospel... And when a door was opened for me in the Lord. So he comes to the city of Troas while he's waiting for Titus. And the Lord opens up the store of ministry very wide open. And there's this great opportunity. But verse 13 says, I had no rest for my spirit. Why? Well, he didn't find whom? Titus. Titus isn't there. So they're still uncertain uh, what's going on at the church in Corinth. There's no fax machine or, or email where he can kind of find out, hey, tell me what's going on here. And he can immediately respond. So he's waiting. 
He's got no rest for his spirit. He's restless. He's thinking about Titus, thinking about the Corinthian church. He was waiting for word of, of the reception of the letter he'd written. He didn't know how it had gone, and he was in a lot of grief, no doubt worrying about Titus himself and then worrying about how the church was going to handle this. And he can't seem to do anything, and, and that's, that's the pressure on those who minister to the church. So what did he do? He says, but taking my what? Taking my leave of them. So I went on to Macedonia. Titus wasn't at the meeting point. Paul was there on schedule. But like we saw in 2 Corinthians 11.28, apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure of me of concern for all the churches. So Titus wasn't there. Paul's grieving with sorrow at the hardest of the church. He's moved on to Macedonia. He's restless. It's unprofitable for them in Troas, possibly hoping to find Titus along the way. So he leaves, and he's going. And here's where we tie back in. And I think that you'll find this very interesting. So it's the end of 2 Corinthians 2.13 where he said, I went on to Macedonia. Look back over to 7. At that point, chapter 2, verse 13, he stops talking about it. Okay? Right there, he says, I went on to Macedonia. And he starts talking about how he survives in the ministry. So chapter 2, verse 14, he says, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. And then, that's the end of that comment. And in verse 14, he says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And, and just as a footnote, he says to everyone who's ever ministered and been disappointed, when, when you're frustrated and restless because of what's going on in the ministry, it's easy to feel like a failure. And I think this is why Paul kind of suspends the story. He goes, I went on to Macedonia, and then he says, and everybody knows where he is emotionally, and that he's struggling, that the church is not responding, and he's done everything physically he can possibly do in ministry to make the church respond, and they are not responding, and he's still waiting for Titus to come. And he's just in that big mess, and he's frustrated, and he's restless, and, and it's unprofitable ministry for the church because he's so concerned about what it's like. And it's easy to feel like a failure. And Paul is at his lowest point, arguably, right here. And, and here's the thing. So he starts talking about ministry, and he encourages all who minister by saying, God has always makes a way through Jesus to redeem any circumstance. So at his lowest point, he says, I'm going to Macedonia. We don't hear anything else about that trip. And then Paul begins to talk about how he manages the ministry. And he helps to encourage ministers. There's no wasted journeys. There's no wasted heartache. There's no wasted difficulty. He leaves Troas. His heart is burdened. There was good ministry there, but he moves on to Macedonia. He hasn't caught up with Titus yet. He's worried about the Corinthian church. He probably feels a bit like he failed, and he goes there, and he's looking for Titus. But Acts chapter 20, verse 2, we won't look there, but Acts chapter 20, verse 2, you can read it on your own time, tells us that he was able to give much exhortation to the churches there. So he moves on from, from Troas, and he comes there to, to, uh, to, to the churches there, and he gives them uh, much exhortation. Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Those are the churches that would be there. Now, he's going to use them as an illustration, and we're going to see as we get into chapter 8 that these churches in Macedonia become the illustration of faithful New Testament giving. So while Paul goes there and he does this ministry there, he begins, he, he's going to bring that back to this letter to Corinth, and he's going to say, hey, these churches are, are the example of what it looks like to give themselves away first and then to give what they have to the Lord. And so it's very profitable for Paul later. And we can see all that now all put together. Paul's living this in the moment. And so he goes. And so what no doubt seems like a failure for Paul on the Corinthian front, which led to his frustration and grief and unprofitability in Troas, is a triumph in Christ for the churches in Macedonia. 
So he didn't let his concerns and his insufficiency to accomplish anything else in Corinth hinder him then from ministering in Macedonia. And, and the Lord was using Paul's hardship and his troubled heart and all of that for his own glory and for the encouragement of the churches. And that's what it means by then, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And that word always is a Greek adverb, pantote, at all times, forever is also a way that it's translated. He forever leads us in triumph in Christ. And, and we were just foreshadowing our passage a little bit, but we're following his lead. In other words, we'll always be led in triumph, even when it doesn't seem like things are going like you would hope they would go. We may not be able to see it. It may not feel like it's triumph, but the word is very wonderful. We see it in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It's used twice. It gives us a great example of what it's, an illustration of what it's like. As the writer of Hebrews talks about Christ, he says, Therefore, he, that's Christ, is able to also save, our word, forever, pantote, those who draw near to God through him, since he, here's our word again, pantote, always lives to make intercession for them. So the word is used as an adjective, forever, and, and and as our passage is an adverb, always. And that just gives you an idea that regardless of where you are in the ministry, whether it's a high or a low, or whether you think it's a high or a low, you don't really know. Paul says, I went to Macedonia. He doesn't say anything about the trip. We see in Acts his profitability there. And we're going to see in just a moment in chapter, in chapter 7, verse 6, some things that occurred. But the fact of the matter is Paul cuts it off. He's at his lowest point. He just says, regardless of where you are, you're right where the Lord can use you in triumph. He's accomplishing what he wants to do if you're doing what you're supposed to do. And just like we can really rely on our faithful God to save forever those that he saves, and just like we can be assured that he always lives to make intercession for those who are his, then in 2 Corinthians 2.14, he always leads us in triumph. Same word, same meaning. Application here now is ministry. He leads us in triumph. It's, it's uh, one verb in the Greek language. Three ambuo, present active participle. It's a verb. It's functioning as an adjective. So the idea is to lead in triumph. He always leads us in triumph. If you remember this, it was typically this word a lot of times is used for the conqueror in relation to the vanquished. So leading in triumph would be all the, all the prisoners of war in chains following along behind. That's not this illustration here. This reference is likely as Paul in context is talking about that for the believers is referring to a Roman triumph. And on the Roman triumph, what would happen was, so the commander, the general would be at the lead. He would have his sons and various officers. They would ride along behind in the chariots and there would be roses and all kinds of fresh smelling things that would come out and, and people would know this is the conquering army. This is, this is the one who was being honored by Caesar. They're going to come and they're going to receive the, the honor that they're due. So those who are led aren't captives. Uh, exposed to humiliation, but are displayed as the glory and devoted subjects of him who leads. So they have the honor of being led by the victor. And who's the victor? Well, that's the last part of the phrase, right? Leads us in triumph in Christ. See. So the idea is that Jesus leads us about here and there and displays us to the world. And Paul is thankful, even at his lowest point, he's thankful for the privilege of belonging to the ranks of the sovereign Lord. 
whether it's in the high, what he would consider a high point of his ministry or a low point of his ministry, the privilege of marching behind the commander-in-chief of the universe in a parade as one of his lieutenants, the privilege of belonging to the victorious troops, if you were, which is what, what you belong to, see, as a minister, the privilege of being under the kind of leadership, a leader who always leads to victory even when you feel like a failure, the privilege of being chosen by God to be a soldier of Jesus Christ, to bear his name, to bear it, to wear his uniform, to serve his cause, so we can know three things about this passage. And we, we've looked at it before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it. Number one is this, okay? We're sometimes derailed during the task of ministry. We feel like we're derailed by disappointments and underwhelming, underwhelming responses from people. And we've talked a lot about that as we were in chapter 6. Paul at Troas, Paul at Corinth, he feels like he's not effective. He feels like he hasn't accomplished anything of any value in any of those places. Sometimes we're going to feel that way. Christ is always more than sufficient. That's the second thing we see. Okay. And so, third thing, he gets the glory for the successes in ministry, and he's accomplishing what he wants. Maybe it's the words of life. Maybe it's the words of death. We don't know. And there's no way for us to discern as we stay in the word and preach it how it's being received, and what's happening in the hearts of people when we're teaching it. We just know, Paul says, at his lowest point, he always leads us in victory in Christ. And ministry led by Christ is always accomplishing what God desires. Now that's the end of the footnote. Okay, So back to our text. Paul leaves the story here in 2 Corinthians 2.14. He says, I went to Macedonia. And then from there, all the way to chapter 7, verse 4, he talks about the ministry. From chapter 2, verse 14, all the way to chapter 7, verse 4. And he talks about the ministry. He talks about how to be victorious. He talks about what to expect. He talks about everything we've been studying for the last year and a half. All of those things that are part and parcel of the ministry, Paul reveals his heart and how he manages it. Just cuts the story off from Macedonia and just goes into this long parenthetical excursion, if you will, about the ministry. And then in chapter 7, verse 5, he picks the story back up again. And it's almost like he doesn't even miss a breath. He's at one of his low points, and when he's done all the ministry that he can do, and there isn't anything else he can do physically to prompt a change in the attitude of the church, he tells us how to handle that and a bunch of other things in those five chapters but now, here in our text in chapter 7, verse 5, he returns to the story and reveals his heart as he left Troas. And you can see the two comparisons right there. I left them and went on to Macedonia. And then he picks up in verse 5, and he says, For even when we came into Macedonia. Do you see that? You could take all of that parenthetical, and certainly it's important, and we've we've uh, boiled that down and given you points to go home with and, and principles to live by and how, how to be encouraged and all this stuff. You take all that, it's parenthetical, you could set it aside, and you could take chapter 2, verse 14, Luke chapter 7, verse 5, and move it right up to the next verse, and it's almost like you didn't ever stop the story. See? For even when we came into Macedonia, he goes, we went to Macedonia, and he talks about the ministry, and he says, for even if we, when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts within, fears without. What was the problem in Troas? He's upset, spirit has no rest, he has no, he has no peace to do ministry, right? He's very twitchy, he's very, very, uh, very impatient to hear what's going on in Corinth, he's very burdened about the whole thing. And he says, so he moves on to Macedonia. Is there a break there? 
apparently not. Our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts within, fears without. And it's, he, hasn't even, he hasn't even taken a breath. It's like he hasn't done any of that parenthetical stuff. He'd stop. He comes right back into it, see? And, and in chapter 2, verse 12 or 13, before the long diversion concerning ministry, Paul told the Corinthians, when he came to Troas to meet Titus, as previously arranged, he didn't find his colleague there. What he did find was a great open door for evangelism in the city, but because of his anxiety, he felt like a failure. And he said, in chapter 2, verse 13, I had no rest for my spirit. And as we reminded ourselves a few months ago, before Troas, he left Troas, he went to Macedonia, and, and here in verse 5, Paul says, how he felt when he arrived in Macedonia, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had to rest. So he says, I had to rest for my spirit in 2 Corinthians 2.13. And then in, in, uh, in verse 5, chapter 7, he says, I could, I could get no rest for the outside either. So 2 Corinthians 6.11, Paul says he endured hardship. Remember, he says in sleeplessness, actually translated more often as watchfulness. Remember, he said he had no rest because he was constantly losing sleep over the ministry. You know, and, and we saw it could be from anxiety because of external circumstances, which is certainly the case for Paul. It could be staying up during, during the night to pray for a situation. That would probably be Paul as well. It, it certainly was from being, uh, dealing with unkind people in the church and working through forgiveness and covering it with fervent prayer. And that certainly could apply to Paul. He's losing sleep. So he has no rest in his spirit. He has no rest in his flesh. So our flesh had no rest. It means a, a relief or freedom. It's a noun. Anesis. Our flesh had no rest. There was no let off, if you will. So he comes. There's no let off from how he felt. And not only that, he says, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. And we are afflicted. Flebuminoi. We've seen that verb over and over again in, in multiple ways and tenses, but those are the grapes in the press. That's the narrow spot. Paul said we were pressed on every side. Paul was obviously in a state of some distress as he thinks about Titus uh, and his fate as he's in Macedonia. He, he brought his own concerns into Macedonia, no doubt worrying about all that, and he stepped into the difficulties of the current ministry. In fact, he uses the same word, and we're going to see this in our very next chapter as we, if we start chapter 8, but listen, he uses the same word. So Paul comes, he's under a tremendous amount of pressure already because of all that's going on in Corinth and because... He, did, he didn't have the heart for the ministry in Troas. And he comes to Macedonia. And look what he, as he talks about the Macedonians, he says this. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of, mark this, affliction, there's our word, okay, flips us, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So, we're going to do the same thing in chapter 7. See, He's going to bring his, his trip to Macedonia to the forefront, and he's going to tell how the Lord uh, brought him through all this pressure. And then we're going to see some ways to manage ministry, and then we're going to get to chapter 8. We're going to be back at the story again. And so these people continue to interject, and Paul interjects through carrying on by the Holy Spirit. He interjects these back into us uh, for our good. So the Macedonians are having a hard time. Paul comes from Troas, and he's having a hard time, and he steps right in. He says, we were pressed on every side. He steps right in uh, in this Macedonian issue, and he, and, and he brings stuff with him, and then he has concerns for the Corinthian church, and that seems like a recipe for disaster. That seems like too much. Right? So it's all about the church, and this is the most difficult part of ministry. And then we read 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6. Look there, if you would. And this is a cool wind that blows. 
we were working in a house, no air, and you open all the, all the windows, and all of a sudden the cool wind's blowing. This is, this is the passage that starts that. Verse 6, he says, you know the story now, but God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, verse 7, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. And you can kind of feel that, can't you? He, he picks up with Macedonia. He tells how he felt when he came from Troas to Macedonia. And there's a lot of pressure both from the Corinthian church and then he moves into Macedonia and it's there too. And it's from every side. Tasks, ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, acting on our role as the ambassador of God, care for the church, that can be overwhelming. Even doing the work in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in the flesh, it's a burden that can make you feel like you're a failure. But as we saw just a moment ago, Christ is always more than sufficient. So he gets glory for the successes in ministry, and, and ministry led by Christ is always accomplishing what God desires in his timing. Now, we're going to see as we work through this mostly narrative passage, as we start in verse 6, we really have just a narrative. And so we're going to move fairly rapidly through it because Paul just talks about the experience. But what we're going to see is that really this first principle of the faithful ministry and spiritual responses is number one, this is it. God knows right when to give the relief we need if we're relying on him for the outcome. He knows right when we get, we should get the relief that we need. And that's exactly what we see here with Paul. He brought Paul through the fire. He brought Paul through the hardship. He had really, as we saw numerous times, upended Paul's pride and his reliance on himself. And then he came through. And we'll talk about this later. Who arrived while Paul was in Macedonia? Titus did. Titus arrived. And did he have something encouraging to say? He did. Let's look at the next part of the narrative. Look at verse 6. But God, who comforts the depressed. And I want to stop right there because I want to make a few observations as we move into this very positive section of faithful ministry and spiritual responses. Who is it that comforts the depressed? Do you have a friend who has some difficulty? Who is it that comforts the depressed? Is it the counselor? I mean, it could be if the Lord has been using that person to use the word to minister to them and to help them get in the circle of comfort, looking to God for comfort, being comforted, coming back around and giving comfort, right? But God's the one who brings the comfort, right? It says, but, and that word is the Greek Allah, that's yet again, God. So this is a reoccurring revelation all through the scriptures. We call this sovereign initiative, if you want to know what the theological term for it is. God has sovereign initiative. And this is one of my favorite expressions. I'm sure it's one of yours as well. Perhaps if it hasn't been up till now, it will be after today. And I want to skim over just a few illustrations for you to just give you an eye for it so that next time you're reading this and you see those two words, and that marvelous expression that we see in but God, you'll begin to appreciate it. 
But we could spend weeks just looking at these. For the time, I just read these things and enjoy them um, and let them illustrate Paul's experience here in Macedonia. So Genesis 8 verse 1, once again, I'm just hitting the high points. I could hit 50 verses and we could talk about all of them and they're all substantial. But these are some of my favorites. So, in the midst of judgment on all mankind, Noah's in the ark. What's this? Genesis 8, 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. So in the middle of the judgment of all mankind, no doubt in the most terrifying situation that Noah could ever find himself in or anyone could find themselves in. Yet all of this stuff going on, his family's there, all the animals are there at the right time. What? God. Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from the land to the land which he's promised on an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here's Joseph. He's at the end of his life. God brought him through all kinds of unfairness and difficulty and false report, and his character was ruined, and he was thrown in prison and made to look like a fool. Was that unfair from a human perspective? Most definitely. Would you have had a hard time with that? I would have. And because of all of that, he was in the right place to be raised to authority and used by God to save his people and many, many millions more, no doubt. And through all of that, Joseph is sure of one thing. What is it? God will come through. But God will take you. Would Joseph be alive when it happened? No. But what was he sure about? Sovereign initiative. God will do this. Psalm chapter 49, verse 15. David was sure. He said, but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol for he will receive me, Selah, so be it. Through all of David's ups and downs, tremendous successes that he had and mountaintop experiences of fellowship with the Lord, some of the most beautiful worship songs ever penned, penned by David, and all of his lows in the middle of terrible wickedness and a sense of failure that must have seemed insurmountable, beyond perhaps anything we've ever known. What did David know? God would take the initiative at the proper time. But God, in spite of all my failings, will receive me. He takes that initiative. How about Acts chapter 13, verse 27? Paul's preaching in the synagogue. He says this, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither Jesus, talking about him, Jesus, nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. In other words, all the prophets told about this guy, he was going to come. Messiah would come, and he came, and everybody in Jerusalem ignored it. They didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize uh, all those prophecies they'd read every Sabbath. Fulfilled these by condemning him, and though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And then verse 29, when they had put him, when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. And then these words in verse 30. What's it say? Isn't that a great passage? 
in spite of all of this stuff that seemed like it was all going wrong, right? The people who should have recognized and didn't, in fact, they didn't recognize anything about the prophecies, neither of the Messiah nor of the prophecies that he would be executed and that they were fulfilling those, did that very thing and put him in a tomb and then divine initiative, but God, what? Raised him from the dead. So very obvious. God takes the initiative. By his own power, according to his own plan, he intervenes at the right time. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the middle of our lostness, dead in our sins, without any hope in the world, God takes the sovereign initiative and what does he do? He intervenes at the right time according to his own plan and for his own glory. Same thing we see in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and sealed us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing richness of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul is very familiar with God's impeccable timing. And he has most mentioned it many, many times. And we can see it over and over in the Old Testament. For his own purpose and for our good. This is sovereign initiative. Through all of the ages, he knows when it's time to step in. And we're going to see that in a very personal way in just a second. If in all of the ages, in all the situations, whether it was Noah and a worldwide flood down to David in his depth of his sin and the hardship he went through and how grieved he was and all of your sin and all of the, the wickedness you were in, lost, I was in, and in God, it's impeccable time. He comes in at just the right time, see? He knows when it's time to step in. And that means there might be some hardship. What about Joseph? All kinds of hardship. And it seemed unending and unrelenting. And it's really similar to how we finished up last week. You know, Paul relied along the way, told us very clearly, on the mercy and the comfort God provides to his children. He knows that it's God's nature. And nothing is going to convince him that this isn't true. And, and we, we're looking at our lives as tools then. God is preparing for his use. And how does he prepare them? He takes them into the furnace and he molds them and he heats them up and he brings them in the fire and he cooks off. I mean, there's all kinds of illustrations. He cooks off the dross and skims it off. He does all kinds of stuff and he prepares his children for the purposes he has. And he uses difficult people and he uses difficult times to do that, see? And, and we are looking at our lives then as tools that God's preparing for his use and moving away from a victim mentality every time we're in a pressing pressure. See? Every time the world seems closing in on us and every direction we look, we have no rest in our spirit, we have no rest in our flesh. Fears within, pressure without. See, We have to move away from a victim mentality and then we're going to embrace the fact that God in his sovereignty has allowed us to go through very difficult times or times of suffering. And so we saw that Paul could say, 
in just, just a couple weeks ago, we saw, I'm filled with joy at all of our affliction, right? Because he had assimilated the knowledge that in God's sovereign plan, this affliction he suffered from the church was from him. It was from the Lord. He was going to use it. It wasn't God's will that the church be disobedient. It wasn't God's will that the church reject Paul's leadership and, and, be, and malign him. The Lord didn't want the church to do that. But regardless of all that, it wasn't taking Paul off of his purpose, see? So the time he spent in Troas and later in Macedonia wasn't too long, see? And it wasn't too short and it wasn't circumventing God's ultimate plan for him. It was working in harmony with it. And so that's why we have that entire parenthetical statement starting in chapter 2, verse 14, and going all the way to chapter 7 and verse 6. Because that's how God worked through all that stuff. And Paul says, this is how I managed all of that, see? And so Paul says to this church in Galatia, in Galatians 6 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if... And when are you going to faint, beloved? What's the most, most predictable time that we're going to faint? In the middle of the pressing pressure and the hardship. And so Paul says here, his experience with the Galatians and that passage, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. And our second principle, just obviously, of faithful ministry and spiritual responses, because we saw this last week, is you can always be sure that God always brings comforting. Paul just cycles back around again from a different angle, but we see the same exact idea. This is where we need the encouragement, isn't it, beloved? I mean, when things are smooth and going well, we're pretty much okay, right? That's why you always want to go see somebody if they're in the hospital. You want to go see somebody if they're having a hard time. If you know they've suffered a blow of some kind, go talk to them, minister to them. Why? Because you're going to bring some comfort to them. This is when people really need to hear it, see? But you can be sure that God always brings comfort. You can, re you can rely on the fact that God, here it is, will not allow any of those who are his to be carried off to the dungeon of despair, if you will. He's not going to allow any of those who are his to be carried off to the dungeon of despair. His timing is impeccable. Just like God intervened to deliver Paul from, uh, from flesh that had no rest and afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. He wants to do that same good work of deliverance in you too. And that's why it's here, see. So verse 6 says, but God who brings, who comforts, it's the compound verb para kaleo. Para is beside and kaleo is to call. Who calls beside, comes up alongside. That's God's nature. As we saw last week, the apostle found himself stretched thin in Macedonia, and God is the only one who can step in and help. And then just this last principle, and we're going to close for today. Verse 6, but God who comforts the depressed. That word depressed is the Greek adjective tapenos. A literal meaning is those who are low-lying. Those who are low-lying. That's which of no reputation or no account. We translated that way too. It's translated humble twice in the New Testament. Metaphorically brought low to grief. That's the idea. God who comforts the depressed. 1 Corinthians one twenty six gives us an illustration of the word 
like you to think about this because it's it moves the application of God who comforts the low lying to a very broad, very broad application. So I want you to see the word here. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. So he's just generally saying to those who are believers, you make up this portion of our culture, okay? Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. So it takes us down a few notches, doesn't it? We elevate ourselves up. Just an unbalanced view of our own ability. We have that trouble all the time, don't we? Consider your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many noble, not many mighty. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. It's not a bad place to be, right? And then mark this, base things, tapenos, base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast on the Lord. So it takes in a lot of places. It's just that broad, that tapenos. It takes in everyone who's a believer, really. It's just that broad. And it's just that specific as Paul. Fears and pressures, no rest in his spirit, no rest in his flesh. Right where you are, and then broadly to anyone who needs it, see. Wherever you are, because this includes you, God is the only one who can do this, and he, and he does do it. It is who he is. And the word comforter, as a noun, is the name of the Holy Spirit. So that's very refreshing to us. And Paul says, God stepped in to help. And that's our third principle of faithful ministry and spiritual responses. Is number three, God's comfort is always given to the lowly. Always given to those who are down. But God who comforts the lowly is an amazing statement. It indicates that it is he alone who offers comfort like this. And people seek all kinds of things to get comfort. And they'll go to every kind of counselor, try every kind of drug, and do all kinds of stuff to f try, try to find the comfort that God says he gives freely at just the right time. And he's directly concerned about all who are in this position. And apart from him, there will not be any true comfort. God's comfort is always given to the lowly, and there doesn't appear to be any exception anywhere or any time. And sometimes he does it through people, and we're going to get to this next week, but verse 6 says, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. And God's good like that, isn't he? Just at the right time. Not in Paul's timing, because 
he would have never made it to Macedonia and had such a wonderful ministry among the churches if he hadn't been through that difficult time, right? If the Lord hadn't comforted him at his difficult moments, he never would have been refreshed to do the things he needed to do, but he wouldn't also be in the position where he could use the power of God to work through him. It's still been Paul's, Paul's pride. And it wasn't in Joseph's timing, because I'm sure he would have preferred not to be thrown into a pit and sold as a slave and make his way to Egypt and then be falsely accused and thrown in prison and forgotten and embarrassed. Divine comfort is much more than just reaching the point of suffering and giving unmediated sympathy and peace and solace. This comfort for Paul came in the form of a person. See? The timely arrival of Titus from Corinth. And we'll talk about this next week, but I just I encourage you, as we do often, if somebody's having a hard time, beloved, you may be that breath of fresh air for somebody. And the Lord is going to work through you to bring encouragement. The message that Titus brought with him was so encouraging to Paul, and we're going to look at that, Lord willing, next time as we move into the rest of the good news of spiritual responses for a faithful minister. So you think about all of that, I just want to say this to you, beloved. Robert Louis Stevenson tells a story of a storm that caught a vessel off of a rocky coast, and it was threatening to drive it and its passengers to destruction. In the middle of the terror, one daring man, contrary to orders, went to the deck and made a dangerous passage to the pilot house, and he saw the steerman at his post, holding the wheel unwaveringly, and inch by inch, turning the ship out once more to sea. The pilot saw the watcher and smiled. Then the daring passenger went below and gave out a note of cheer and said, quote, I've seen the face of the pilot, and he smiled. All is well. And my encouragement to you is this, beloved. In the Word of God, you can see the face of the pilot, right? You know that all is well, even when it doesn't seem like it. As a child of God, there is no difficulty wasted, no hardship, no sorrow wasted, all to bring you to the point where you can be useful for the Lord. And you can make that circle around to become a comforter for someone else. Paul certainly illustrates that for us. But that is just as personal as you. So my, my prayer for you today and my prayer this week for you is that you might make that real in your life today. Those realities become real for you. Let's bow me dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for time in your word. We're always grateful for how your word speaks directly to us, how it opens us up and reveals the faulty parts and then gives the correct parts to put in to make us like we should be. It's a very personal issue, depression, hardship, struggling with victim mentalities. We didn't get what we deserved. We were given something we didn't deserve. It wasn't fair. And the pressure's put on us and out of us comes the vinegar of complaining. Why me, Lord? Again, instead of the wine of contentment, knowing that you in your perfect timing, throughout all the ages, as we saw just a moment ago, 
stepped in at just the right time. You've bundled us in the bundle of the living. There's not a bird that falls from the sky, Matthew tells us, but that you don't know that it happened and we're much more valuable than a sparrow. So Father, we thank you for those promises, for this very personal look into the lives many of us have to struggle with. Problems are real, difficulties are real. Sometimes it appears what people have done is unfair, unrelenting. Yet, Lord, you are the God of all comfort. You provide peace that's beyond our understanding. We trust you and know that you'll come in at the right time if we don't faint. Help us not to faint. To be made into your image, whatever it is that you have to take us through to get us there. We pray this with our most sincere hearts. In Jesus' name.